Well, uh, Samuel, as we know, is divided into two books in our Bible, um, which actually doesn't really have a whole lot of significance. Uh, probably in the most practical sense, it just reflects the fact that when Samuel was originally put together, it was longer than one scroll, and so it took two scrolls for the entirety of the manuscript. So when we have First and Second Samuel, the same thing is true of First and Second Kings. We really have one book uh, in two sections. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we'll go through all of First and Second Samuel before we study another portion of the Scriptures. We might. I don't know. You know, by now the planning, my planning, extends only on a weekly basis, and we'll see how we're doing as we get through things. Um, But we come to Samuel, and in terms of its history, the setting of Samuel comes right at the tail end of the time of the judges, like we talked about last time. Uh, In fact, the prophet Samuel is officially the last of the judges. We actually pick that up in 1 Samuel 7. That's made clear as well as in chapter 12. He's the last of the judges. Uh, So Samuel is going to be the one whom God works through to move uh, his people from a period of these judges or rulers in Israel to to ultimately establishing the monarchy of Israel. First with uh, King Saul, who ultimately fouls out, then to be followed by King David, and so on. Uh, So the period of the judges is coming to an end. The period of the monarchy of Israel is about to begin. Uh, It's about 1100 B.C., And you remember that the time uh, in Israel's history, we talked about this a bit last week, but this time in Israel's history, the era of the judges, it was a particularly dark time. And the refrain that goes through all the book of Judges is uh, that of telling us two main things that are happening. One, there was no king in Israel, and two, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, So not only is effective leadership basically missing among the people of God during this time, But there's also a kind of moral anarchy within Israel as well. Uh, Faithfulness to God is out, doing what I want is in. Uh, Of course, the parallels between the days of the judges and even our own day are are startlingly uh, similar in that sense. But but all that to say, this time in Israel's history is not a good time. Apostasies all around in Israel, because of their disobedience to God, uh, they're living under the constant threat uh, from groups like the Philistines. So instead of the people uh, flourishing in in this land that God promised them and brought them into, instead of that, they're living in this uh, state of persistent disregard for God, and as a result, they find themselves in in chaos, both both socially and spiritually. They're in this place of chaos because chaos always attends a total disregard for the one who, who made the world good and who tells us how things go best. Disregard God. And what do we know, even from our overview of Scripture these last few weeks, what do we know? If we disregard God, then turmoil and discord, confusion, even decreation attends that kind of rebellion. So the historical setting of Samuel is one of distress. The people of Israel, they need deliverance from their folly. There's no king in the land. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And uh, and given that context... We might expect the book of Samuel to start right in with an account of a a coronation ceremony, for example. We might expect Samuel to start maybe with Saul's inauguration as king. Or or maybe at least we might expect it to start with Samuel uh, calling the people back from their worship of false gods like he does in chapter 7. We'd expect this book to start along those lines in some way where the people uh, need leadership and the people need to be called back to the God who's uh, saved them, the God who's given them this land, we'd expect things to start on a kind of big, national, uh, monarchy-centered, spiritual renewal kind of level as we come to this book. Uh, But Samuel doesn't start that way. Uh, Instead of beginning with the narrative of a king, Samuel instead starts uh, with the narrative of this lonely lady in a very bitter set 
of circumstances. A lonely lady in bitter circumstances. Um, so, so now in thinking about how things start here in chapter 1, reflect on this with me for, for just a moment. We have, this, we have this lady here in a bitter set of circumstances. Um, None of us here are strangers to the reality of disappointment. Uh, probably hardly a day or maybe even a week goes by that we don't experience some run-in with failed expectations. Uh, maybe it's in the realm of something a little more trivial, like a few items on our to-do list didn't get completed by the end of the week like we'd hoped, uh, so we're disappointed in that. In that. Um, or maybe our disappointment reflects something more significant. Uh, for example, maybe we had certain expectations of a person, or maybe we had expectations regarding a developing situation, and, and time went by and those expectations weren't met. And, and depending on the size of that particular failure, disappointments can move from, from trivial to being, to being a big deal pretty quickly. We can become disheartened. Uh, but still, oftentimes we can live with those kind of disheartening circumstances. Life, life does go on. Even, even in the bigger things, uh, we might uh, stay in that disheartened and dispirited s- state for a while. Uh, we think to ourselves, it really would have been nice if things could have turned out a little bit differently. Um, but, but usually, we don't remain in that condition because circumstances change and life moves forward, things take place, and, and soon we're onward and upward with the other things that are going on in our lives. Disappointments happen. Some of them can be quite a bit bigger than others, uh, but they happen and we're affected, and then generally speaking, we can, we can get past them and keep going. However, there are those kinds of disappointments that prove to be of a higher-than-average significance. Uh, And and the weightier significance exists because some situations of unmet expectations uh, just don't seem to fade away. Uh, For for whatever reason, they don't seem to ever leave us alone. They have a kind of staying presence in our lives. It it may be uh, career ambitions that never seem to be realized, even though the company has promised upward momentum again and again and again, but the years go by and nothing happens and we have to sit with that. It may be relationship progress that for some reason never really gains the traction that it needs. Disappointment hangs there like a cloud. Progress and time goes by and the, and the relational disappointment hangs there like a cloud as time passes. Well, whatever the case may be, we know that there are certain experiences of unmet expectations that are in a different kind of category. They're persistent disappointments. They're ever-present kinds of disappointments and they wear on us in a unique kind of way. And what often happens in those kinds of situations is that uh, rather than the disappointment leaving us so we can move on in life, instead, those kind of disappointments have a progressive effect on us. In in other words, uh, we we can start moving from a place of of general dismay to a place of bitterness. Resentment can start to creep in. Our hearts start to get uh, just a little more sour each day as the situation goes on. And then maybe that's something you've experienced. Maybe that's something you're even experiencing right now. We can face circumstances that move the needle of our heart from general run-of-the-mill disappointment into deeper levels of bitterness and hardness of spirit and these kinds of things as time goes on. A kind of sourness can set in. 
And as we begin 1 Samuel, which, which is a glorious book about the rise of Israel's monarchy, it's the rise and fall of King Saul, the rise of King David, there's epic battles being fought and, and lost and won and all of these kinds of things. In a book so full of extraordinary history around the establishment and even tearing down of kings and kingdoms, in a book like that, we start in this very unexpected place. We start in a much more personal place as we start with this lady Hannah, who's in a situation that may have been merely disappointed, disappointing at first, but, but the breaking point has actually come for her, and things are now getting more sour. That relentless disappointment has set in on her heart. So, so in this passage, we meet a lady in a situation of significant bitterness, but with that, she's not left there, because in this passage, we also meet the God who remembers His people in such distress. And while it might seem like a strange place to start in a book about kingdoms, we'll actually see that it's the perfect place to start if we're really going to have our hearts rightly tuned toward the God who is going to reveal Himself as the unique and special helper of His people as we go on in the book of Samuel. Uh, so, so, so we're going to look at the text today, and, and if you have your Bibles open, that'll help as, as we go through the passage, uh, not, just, not just because we need to move at a pretty good pace to get through all of chapter 1 today, uh, but also uh, it's important to be reading along in the text uh, just to make sure that what's being said from the front is really there. Uh, we always want to be students of our Bibles at a personal level. Um, so, so we're going to move all the way through chapter 1 today. And, and again, we have this lady in a bitter situation, and at the same time, we have a God who remembers her. So a lady in a bitter situation and the God who remembers. That's what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And, and we'll start in on the first eight verses looking at this bitter situation, um, which, is, which is spelled out for us fairly uniquely here. So if you look at verses 1 to 8, and you can follow along as we give a bit of a summary here, uh, but in those verses, we're given uh, a number of different details. So some details are, are immediately important, and we'll work those out. Some of the details actually will, will be more important later on as we get a little further in Samuel. Uh, so, so, for example, we're introduced to Eli here, and we're told his sons are priests, but his, his, his priest sons have Egyptian names, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, now that, that doesn't make sense. Who gives their boys names from a place where Israel was held in such dire bondage? So, so already, there's, there's an indicator there that all's not well over with that Eli group and his kids over there. But that's going to be something we have to come back to later. Already right here, though, the author of the narrative, who's a master, uh, master writer, uh, is just giving us some clues to help, help get us ready for things to come. Um, but the main focus of chapter 1, is not on Eli and his boys. The main focus of chapter 1 is on this man named Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Panina. And, and the chapter starts by telling us a little bit about Elkanah and the, and the family he's from. We're told about the place where he lives, and we're told that he has these two wives. Uh, it is interesting to note that Hannah is listed first, and that's probably because, um, because Elkanah married her first. Um, Panina is mentioned second, and, and as the story goes on, we find out that, of course, Hannah is barren, so probably he married Panina because he wanted uh, to, have, to have offspring. Um, but, but apart from the fact that Elkanah has two wives, it seems like otherwise he, he's a fairly pious man. Uh, we're, we're told that he and his family, they go up to Shiloh year after year to worship the Lord and make sacrifices. Um, and you notice there that, that the name for God in verse 3 is the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. This will show up again in Hannah's prayer. It's the first time this name for God shows up in the Old Testament scriptures. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. 
but in a context where so many people of Israel are, are apostate during this time of the judges, it is notable that, that Elkanah and his family are, are not apostate. They go to Shiloh. Uh, which we actually learn from the book of Judges, is the place where the tabernacle is currently set up as well as uh, where the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is kept. So it's a, it's a central place of worship uh, before God and the offering of sacrifices during this period in Israel's history. And, and so even though apostasy abounds in Israel, this family, they, they remain relatively faithful. They, they go up to worship year after year, the text says. But as we move through the story, we learn that all is not happy on the home front. Uh, because Elkanah, well, we read he clearly loves Hannah very much. He even gives her double portions of, of meat on these occasions of, of temple worship. Uh, so he loves Hannah, and it's indicated in that way. However, Hannah doesn't have any children. And as a result, Panina, who, who again probably is well aware that Elkanah loves Hannah more, uh, Panina would like to take the opportunities of worship especially uh, to taunt Hannah and to provoke her, uh, because while Hannah has no children. We're told the Lord has closed her womb. Hannah has no children. Penina has a number of children. Sons and daughters, verse 4 tells us. And, and so in these instances, Hannah would be, would be very sorrowful. It was to be extra kind to her in verse 8, but she didn't have an appetite, verse 7. Her husband, he, he tries to be extra kind to her in verse 8, but she still remains sad. Um, so, so, so we have this, this general narrative this to pre, pre, that's presented to us in terms of what's going on in this passage. But, but with that basic framework in mind, it does repay us to, to think a little harder and, and dig a little deeper in, sense of, in the sense of understanding the struggle that Hannah is really going through and what's portrayed for us in these verses. So, so think back through verses 1 to 8 with me here for just a second. And we need to notice some really important things. Uh, because more than just an, an introduction to the story, we're given some really critical details here. Um, first of all, in verse 1, we're told that Elkanah and, and family, they live in the land of Ephraim, which we could easily read over quickly. Uh, there's all kinds of places and names in the Bible that, that have no real geographical categories in our mind. We just read them because they're there. Um, but, but to understand what that means, let me read to you the blessing that Moses gives in Deuteronomy concerning the land that would include Ephraim. Listen to what Moses says as the people are going to enter the promised land about this land. Moses says this, May the land be blessed by the Lord with the dew of heaven's bounty and the watery depths that lie beneath, with the bountiful harvest from the sun and the abundant yield of the seasons, with the best products of the ancient mountains and the bounty of the eternal hills. And on and on and on it goes like this. Ephraim, we know, was an extremely fruitful place. Or to use the, 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 the word that uh, Moses keeps using in his blessing, it's an extremely bountiful place. So, so Hannah lives in a very fruitful place, a prosperous place. And, and we're also meant to understand that Elkanah, the husband, he, he was quite fruitful personally, at least in terms of his material and social standing. And the way the author communicates that to us is that in all of Samuel and Kings, so 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Elkanah is the only man who's not a king who has multiple wives. So, so while two wives is contrary to God's design, in this culture, it reflects at least a significant means, to say the least. H Hannah lives not just in a fruitful land, but she lives with a very prosperous, probably socially, uh, a man of, of, of very uh, high repute socially as well. She lives with, with Elkanah. Um, and, and then there's Panina. Whatever else we may have to say about her, she's born many children to Elkanah. She has lots of kids. 
So, so put all this together, and Hannah lives in this extremely fruitful land with an extremely successful husband and a rival wife who is very able to have children. And yet, in this context of great prosperity, what is Hannah? Hannah's barren. She's unable to have children. She's not prosperous in the way she longs to be prosperous. And and we know not having children was uniquely uh, culturally sorrowful in ancient Israel, not just due to the desire for, for heirs for the family name, but also in the hopes of fulfilling the promise talked about back in Genesis 3, like we spent time on, that promise that came to Abraham, that, that through him uh, there would be many children. That's the Israelite blessing there. And so there's a unique cultural sorrow that attends uh, Hannah's inability to have children here. So, so we see Hannah totally surrounded by fruitfulness and prosperity, and she's unable to have children. And and just to make the tensions more punctuated, this isn't one of those passing disappointments that we can move on from, but Hannah's lack of children is something that she's constantly reminded of. The, The text even makes it clear that it's something she's uniquely reminded of year after year as they go up to worship. And this reminder doesn't come from the well-meaning concern of a kind friend, but it comes from the provoking intentions of Panina. Verse 6 very literally reads that Panina would thunder against Hannah just to provoke her. Now that's interesting because in chapter 2 when Hannah praises God, she's going to praise God for thundering against her enemies. She's going to take Panina's words and use them in her prayer. That's something for next week. But Panina's thundering against her, provoking her because the Lord had kept her womb completely shut, the text says. So so it's this miserable situation, and it's an ongoing situation for Hannah year after year. And Elkanah, he, you know, he seems like a loving husband. He seems like a, but he clearly doesn't get it. Verse 8 makes that really plain. Hannah, why are you crying? He asks. What a dumb question. But he knows why. He even says why later on. Am I not better to you than ten sons? He knows why she's crying, and yet he hits her with four questions. We know from any level of husbandry skill that to hit a sad situation with ten why questions, or with four why questions, is not necessarily the right, the right tack to take. Hannah, I mean, Elkanah, he might be trying, but he's flying the flag of, of dense husbandry very high in this, in this text. He, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. Am I not better? Well, huh, you know, you're all right. And so what is the effect of all this on Hannah? Well, it's not a good effect. In fact, in the wording that's used throughout this whole narrative, we see that things are not good in Hannah's heart at all. And so it repays us to pay some real attention to the Hebrew translation through some of this because we need to catch the significance of what's going on. So let me point out a few things in terms of how Hannah's heart is described here. Verse 8, first of all, we have her husband asking why she's troubled. In Hebrew, the question doesn't read, why are you troubled? It reads, why are you bad of heart? Very literally, Elkanah is asking why Hannah's heart is in an evil place. It's the word for evil that's there. Then if we just jump to the next section, we read in verse 10 where Hannah is deeply hurt, is how this translation puts it, at least literally in Hebrew, it reads that she's bitter of soul, which, by the way, is an expression that occurs multiple times in the book of Job, just to give that saying context. She's bitter of soul. Then down in verse 15, Hannah describes herself not so much as broken-hearted like the text reads, but she actually says she's hard-spirited. She's stony-souled. And then in verse 16, she also describes herself as praying from a place of anguish and resentment. 
I don't know why our translations ease things up here. Maybe they just felt bad for Hannah because she's having a rough time. But, but she's not just a troubled lady. She's not just a, a deeply hurt lady. She's not just a brokenhearted lady. Hannah's not just, just disappointed in how her life is going and kind of having a sad period of time. No, Hannah is, is, is moved far past that. She's bad-hearted, bitter of soul, hard-spirited, in anguish, and she's resentful. So, so Hannah's not just sad or a little down. Hannah's sour and her heart's getting stonier. After all, what a, what a patronizing life to have to live for her. She's surrounded by all this prosperity, and there's Hannah without a child that she longs for so badly. And not just that, but she's enduring the mocking of her rival who has so many children. It's also interesting to note, uh, we know how, how names are uniquely meaningful in the Hebrew culture. It's interesting to note that Hannah's husband's name, Elkanah, that means God creates. Hannah's name means God is merciful. So if God creates, if He gives life, and if God is merciful, we can, we can see where Hannah's mind would go as she reflects on these things. Where in the world is God in all of this for me? The Creator, merciful God, and yet here I am. And so with that, the bitterness sets in. And we can understand that. We've been in places where bitterness sets in. Maybe, maybe it seems like flourishing is going on all around us, but in our own life there's just that deep and, and un, unrelenting and maybe even that, that patronizing kind of sorrow that starts to plague us. Really, the important question isn't if we've been there, if we're in this world long enough, we get there. This is not a foreign experience to us. The important question isn't if that has been our experience. The real question is, what do we do when we face that situation? What do we do when our heart starts going sour? Right off the top, there seems to be some really easy options for Hannah. Option one, she could lash out at Panina. That might make her feel better. She could say something like, Alcana loved me first and he loves me better. Take that. She could start lashing out at Panina. Option two, Hannah could just distance herself from God. You know, if he really took care of his people, he'd never leave me in this condition. She she, she could have gone there. Most of Israel's forgetting God anyway during this period, so she'd probably find some wonderful friend groups who are happy to to take her in and support her in her her deconstruction of faith down at Baal's Bar or whatever it is. Option three, Hannah could have, could have blamed her husband for never really understanding her. And now, and now she's just so lonely and isolated. It's his fault. Everybody thinks he's nice. You know, Alcana, they're always talking about it. He's such a nice guy. But he never even gets me. He never understands. So we have lots of options when resentment starts to creep in. Resentment is that kind of noxious weed. It, it can produce some nasty stuff in our hearts. Hannah has options. But what does Hannah do? So this is really amazing. What does Hannah do? Toward her husband and Panina, we have no speech recorded, which is just amazing in and of itself. She says nothing there. She doesn't lash out at them. She certainly doesn't turn back uh, or turn her back on God either. Because what we see next in verses 9 to 18 is that instead of lashing out at others or instead of giving up on God, instead, Hannah responds by calling out to God in prayer, which is, which is what we see in this next section. It's quite the amazing response to all this. So verse 9, if you look at that. We have this occasion here when the family's up at Shiloh worshiping again. Uh, they just completed a meal, we're told. It almost sounds like Hannah was, was eating again. Uh, but when we get to the end of this section, we notice that she hadn't been, which is an important thing to notice. Um, so, so they're all there. Uh, they've had this meal. And, and it's probably another instance of, of Panina tormenting Hannah and Hannah not eating. Uh, maybe Elkanah tried once or twice to be nice, but now he's, he's sitting back scrolling on his iPhone, kind of aloof to the whole thing. Um, he's done paying attention. Verse 10 finds Hannah not just deeply hurt like we have there in our English Bibles, but she's bitter of soul. 
And in a condition bitter of soul, she goes before God in prayer, which is what we're told. Which is, in, in, I guess in a strange way, a very comforting thing. To know you can go before God bitter of soul. Doesn't it seem so often we have to go before God having all our ducks in a row, everything straightened up, everything all, all nice and poised and put together, and we have our coffee and our Bibles open to an important psalm, and then we can go before God in prayer. No, how does she go before God in prayer? Just bitter of soul. She's just torn up. She goes before uh, God bitter of soul, and she prays that God would remember her and give her a son. Uh, to ask God to remember in the, in the uh, Semitic idiom is, is to ask God uh, to take notice of our special circumstances. Take notice of our condition. So she's asking this. Don't forget about me here, here in my condition, but take notice and ask. And Hannah prays that God would, would do this and, and give her a son. And, and just notice the way Hannah prays here. There's actually a, a world of help in the way Hannah prays. And I'll just give this to you. In fact, maybe this is a good conversation to have in, in our home groups this week. Just noticing how Hannah prays. And I'll give you a few things, but you can think this out further on your own, which keeps me from preaching a whole other sermon on it. So you have homework for this one, right? But think about how she prays. First of all, she prays emotionally here. With many tears, verse 10 says. So, so we come before God in our need. We come before God with full vent of our emotion. She's not restrained in that at all. And she not only prays emotionally, but she prays earnestly. She commits herself with this vow to the Lord, which is no small thing like we read about in Deuteronomy. If you make a vow to the Lord and don't fulfill it, it's an egregious sin. The text literally reads here that she vowed a vow. She very much vowed a vow to the Lord. Right? So, so she's earnestly praying, making this vow to the Lord. She says, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Then she includes the haircut language there uh, that reflects a Nazarite vow of service uh, like we can read about in Numbers chapter 6. It's my favorite chapter. Um, so, so she's coming, uh, she's committing her boy to the Lord there. And, and, and Hannah's, we need to see, she's not trying to make some kind of barter deal with God as, as she says, you know, I'll, I'll give if you give, that kind of thing. No, she's making it clear that, that a son from God is going to be a son for God. This, this is her posture of heart. Remember, Abraham would have given up his son Isaac if asked. And, and Hannah would have had recollection of those stories of God's kindness in Israel's history. Hannah goes one step further. She's willing to give her son to God before he's even born. She, she's not going to selfishly revel in the possession of a child, uh, but instead she's going to offer her boys an act of worship back to the service of the Lord. So she prays emotionally, and she prays very fervently. She's making this vow. And she also prays accurately which is no small thing considering the idolatry that is present in Israel during this time. Israel preferred, more often than not, to, to come before gods of their own making, so to speak, the Baals and other things all around. Hannah prays to the true God as He reveals Himself to be. And this is where this Lord of hosts terminology comes up. Even though this is the first time we read uh, about the Lord being addressed as the Lord of hosts or Lord of armies uh, in the Old Testament, what we have to understand is this is God's fighting name and this is how He has revealed Himself to His people. From the Exodus and then from the entrance into the land of Canaan, God has said, I'm the one who's going to fight for my people. That's what God has told them. You can trust in me. I'm the one who's going to be victorious for you. And so she comes to the Lord recognizing that He's the one who's the the captain of the armies of heaven, as it were, and he's the one who's going to fight battles. So she's approaching him properly in that way. And she also prays that the Lord would take notice of her when she's in her affliction, which is a statement there in verse 11 that brings us back to Exodus 3, where the Lord says to Moses, I've seen my people in their affliction. 
So, so Hannah's praying very accurately as she recognizes I'm approaching the living God who fights for His people and who sees His people in affliction. She's approaching God based on the truth of who God has revealed Himself to be. This isn't uh, some, some uh, spiritual exercise for her. She's not caught up in idolatry and something else. No, she's coming to the living God as He's revealed Himself to be. So emotionally she prays, fervently she prays, accurately she prays. And, and in all this she's giving so much energy to the task that Eli the priest, he thinks she's been drinking. Even though she's not speaking out loud. She's praying in her heart, but her lips are moving. Eli thinks she's been drinking. He calls her out on it in verse 14. Um, a, a daughter of wickedness, he calls her. Which ironically, as we get into the description of Eli's sons, is going to be exactly how they're described. Though that's an accurate description of his sons, and it is not an accurate description of Hannah. She says, actually, I'm not drinking. That's not what's going on. Instead... Instead, I'm coming before God from the depth of my anguish and my resentment. Again, she's very honest with the priest. I'm coming before God with His weightiness on me. And, he, and Eli realizes that he's made a mistake. Um, and so instead of condemning her, he blesses her. And then we read the most amazing statement in verse 18, where Hannah went on her way. She ate. Remember, that's important. She hasn't been eating. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Now, now that doesn't... Uh, strike us as something we would expect. Because she's, she's been despondent and not eating because she doesn't have a son and she lives life with that patronizing reality all around her. Now she's prayed, but that's all. She's prayed. And Eli, Eli blessed her, but we know from the narrative we're not supposed to put much stock in that because Eli will have to deal with him later. She's prayed. She's prayed. The Lord hasn't even answered her, and yet she's relieved as if everything has changed, even though she's going back to her patronizing life. And, and, and in this, we just have to see the extraordinary lesson that's there for us in, in, the, in the function of prayer. Because in prayer, the pain is not necessarily immediately removed. In fact, more often than not, we know this, the specific circumstances of, of pain that we come with before God, very often they very much remain after prayer. But in prayer, while the pain itself is not removed, the heart still finds great relief. Which is exactly what Paul says to the Philippians, isn't it? I wonder if Paul was thinking about this passage when he wrote Philippians and said, Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and what? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It's bigger than we can make sense of. The peace of God, through the function of prayer, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Where does peace come from? Is peace only found in the immediate ending of, of, of certain situations and circumstances that cause bitterness to stir up in our heart? Is peace only found when that physical or, or, or social or whatever relief it is that we're longing for actually takes place? No. Peace that guards our hearts from things like bitterness, peace comes when we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and unburden ourselves there in prayer. There's great relief in that act. And, and so like Hannah, we, 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 can, we can do this. We can come before the Lord with very honest emotion about what, what's going on in our lives. Oh Lord, I'm, I'm, just, I'm torn deep by the situation that I found myself in and is breaking me down. And we can do this with fervency. I promise, O oh Lord, that as you bring relief to me, I'm going to offer that relief to you through a life of worship. I want to live for you. I need this relief, and I want to live for you. And we can do this accurately, saying to the Lord, I know you're the Lord of armies. 
I know you're the one who fights for your people, and I know you're the one who sees me in my affliction and proves himself to be the God who answers. And in that humble unburdening, relief comes. Not because the situation is immediately dissipated, but instead that peace comes as bitterness is overrun with the peace of God which comes to guard our hearts. And instead of kind of a noxious overgrowth of resentment going on inside of us, instead we find ourselves in this place of rest and relief. So we see the practicality of this. God's given us prayer ultimately, uh, which is opened up through the finished work of Jesus, like we have just studied in the book of Hebrews. God's given us prayer in order that through communion with Him, we can have rest even in continuing unrestful circumstances. She didn't walk away having a son that day. She walked away in a place of peace because she'd come before God in prayer. And so that's a word for us. It's a word for us in the, in the personal nature of our days and weeks, even with the, the public woes all around us, the trouble that seems to hold on to us in both personal and public kind of ways, that, that we, we can find ourselves very much with no peace in our hearts. We can find that bitterness starting to creep in, the sourness that starts to approach as we open our phone and read the news or as we face personal circumstances that, quite frankly, we don't really want to tell anybody about. As we face these things, the bitterness can creep in. And we can ask ourselves, have we been prayerful people in the midst of those things? Have we come before God in prayer? Have we been unburdening ourselves before the sovereign Lord of the universe who's described in Scripture not just as the Lord of armies of men, but the Lord of the armies of angels, the Lord of the armies of the sun and the moon and the stars. He's the Lord of hosts. He is the sovereign Lord of all. Have we prayed and found peace through knowing Him and unburdening ourselves before Him? Not because relief is immediate, but because we're renewed in the fact that He does hear us and He does help and we rest in that. None of this is happening apart from His care. So in prayer, even before the answer comes, in prayer, Hannah finds communion with God that brings her comfort. And so we just check ourselves. Do, do, do you pray through bitter episodes of life? Do I pray through bitter episodes of life? I don't pray through bitter episodes of life like I should. But I'm renewed in my efforts by this truth. We can be renewed in our efforts by this truth. Down on my knees, oh Lord, I know you hear. Oh Lord, I know you answer. Oh Lord, I know you take action. So Hannah's in a bitter situation. She responds not by lashing out or giving up or whatever else she might have been able to do, but she, she uh, responds by praying to the Lord of armies who sees us in personal affliction. And then, and then from there, finally, we see that God does remember her from verse 19 and on. So we see how he answers her prayer. Um, you remember how Hannah asked God to remember back in verse 11, verse 19. We read that the Lord remembers her. Uh, she has a baby boy. Uh, she names him Samuel. And, and in due time, she fulfills her vow. Uh, she, she brings Samuel to the temple and gives him to the Lord in his service there. Um, and, and while we could camp on a number of details here, we, we can just imagine how difficult that must have been for Hannah at some level. This whole episode uh, does give us a wonderful picture of, of the way God works in the midst of His people's despondent needs. And here's Hannah obeying in response uh, to what she's confirmed to the Lord she'll do in terms of worship. Um, but but with, all, with all the narrative craft of this chapter, there, there is a unique way that God's kindness is highlighted here as, as we get, especially to the end, though this is something that, that actually plays all the way through chapter 1. There's a, there's a play on two words all through chapter 1 that really comes to a head in this final section. And the play in two words involves the word give in Hebrew. That word shows up seven times in different forms in chapter 1. And also showing up seven times in chapter 1 in various forms is the Hebrew word ask. 
So there's seven asks and there's seven gives. And we we know seven is a number of completion throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. After all, we remember how on the seventh day, God rested from His very good and complete work of creation. So, So seven is a number of completeness and perfection. And in this passage, the language itself is crafting a picture of complete asking and complete giving. At a personal level, it's, it's making it very clear that we can come to God with the completeness and totality of our requests, emotion and fervency and all of these things that Hannah is bringing to it. It's a very full prayer, isn't it, that she makes before God. We can come to Him with the completeness of our requests, and as we come to God in that way, we can know we come to the God who gives, and He gives, not maybe in the way we would exactly like it to be right away, but His answers are perfect and complete in and of themselves, even bringing relief to us before the full answer is given. So, so on a personal level, there, there's that to think about in our own life, the asking and the giving. This is, this is what God calls us to do. And, and even with that, though, there's a bigger application of truth being communicated here because the people uh, who lived during this time of Samuel, they were in deep need of, of asking God for the renewing grace that marked them out. And interestingly, along those same lines, probably the first readers of Samuel were not contemporaries of this period of time, but were those who were exiled after their languishing disobedience from God. Those would have been the first ones to, to hear the compiled books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And what did they need to be renewed in, in that condition of, of exile? What do we need to be renewed in as we're far from God and feeling the effects of that, even in Christendom in general? In, fa- in fact, that you probably saw last Sunday, there was that article in the Atlantic, uh, and it was entitled, the, Evangel- the Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart, which is wrong. The evangelical church will never break apart. Jesus sustains His church completely and totally. But the evangelical church is having some troubles these days. And we read about it in that article. It highlights things like like the the political and racial and and even like vaccine divisions, all these things going on in the church in the United States in particular at, at the moment. And we recognize down through history, while even our own time is a time of difficulty and pressure, we are not facing new pressures as the people of God. There have always been those things that come in from the periphery and try to be central. There have always been those things that would draw the people of God away from the living and true worship of God, which is exactly what's going on in Judges with the Philistines and the Baals and all those gods around, drawing people away. It's happening in our own time. If we can just get politics in the middle, then certainly that will be enough to derail the gospel. That's an absolute scheme of the evil one. We know these things go on. And what do we recognize in a chapter like this that comes to people who, as a a corporate group, not you, you're, you're all wonderful. This is not something we're experiencing here, which is glorious. But what do what, what happens when we think about the church in, in general, the people of God historically, as they're drawn away from the central reality of who God is? What do we need to do? Well, we need to find ourselves in a place of asking. Asking, 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 asking. Because what do we know about God? God is the one who gives, 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 gives. And the answer to that giving is found in 1 Samuel in the birth of a son. But we know the ultimate answer to God's giving is not going to be found in the birth of Samuel because he's going to die just like all the rest. It's not going to be found in the coming of Saul. He's going to fall out. It's not even going to be found in the birth of David. He's going to fall out and have all kinds of trouble on his own, and then he's going to die. The the, the ultimate answer that we're looking for is pointing us forward to the significance of the Son who is going to come as the central figure of our sustained hope. And so as we think about this from a posture of, of dire need and deep 
concern, even for the condition we're facing in Christianity today. We can be renewed in the fact that as we ask for the fullness of Christ to be made clear in our hearts, we have a God who answers those kinds of things. We need to be praying along these lines that the significance of the better son would be placed very plainly in the hearts of God's people, not just for the sake of our own perseverance, but for the sake of the world around to see. What marks us out as the Christian church? What marks Israel out as Israel during this time? If you were to ask during this time, it would be, well, they're, they're great people. They capitulate to all the different gods around. Have them over there like the God that's at the party. It's going to be great. What marks out the Christian church in our own time? Well, quite frankly, it's embarrassing what marks out the Christian church in our own time. Bitterness does abound. Infighting does abound. All these kinds of things are going on in the church in our own time. And what we need is to be renewed in our asking for God to give us the significance of the Son right in the center of our worship. And as we do that, as we do that, we learn from Samuel, we're compelled by this initial story to, 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 to go after that need, recognizing that God is the one who provides. He provides the, 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 centrality, uh, the centrality of the Son in whom we place our hope. And so we can be renewed in that way as we come to this passage. The people who first read Samuel needed to be renewed in that way, and we need that even in our own day in terms of our praying. We can be, as a church in general, like Hannah. We can, we can look around and we can be very despondent. But we never need to be despondent ultimately when we serve the God who answers so plainly and so powerfully and who brings relief to us even before the fullness of His answer is provided. And in these kinds of things, First uh, Samuel begins uh, by giving us that kind of directive and that kind of help, and we're thankful for that. We look forward to studying the rest of the book where God speaks to us in these kind of ways. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do ask that we would be renewed in your truth. We know that uh, we need it. We need it personally. We need it corporately as your people. Uh, Father, we need to see the Son as our source of hope. We long for Him. We long uh, not only for Jesus' return, but we long to worship Him in the lives we live now. And we ask that you would bring us along in that way, that uh, we would rest in your care, that we would be quick to unburden ourselves before you in prayer, and that in that, in knowing you and in uh, coming before you with our requests, we would find fullness of life and relief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.